All right, guys, welcome to Revive School. Here we are, 1 Kings 1. Wow, we're still in the historical books. I mean, Kevin, how many historical books are there? Do you remember? There's 12. There's 12. How many have we, have we covered? Five. We've been talking through uh, Joshua and Judges and Ruth and First and Second Samuel, and now here we are in 1 Kings, all right? So now here's our phrase for 1 for first Kings, okay? It's kind of a fun one, and it's kind of like a, like, wait, where the heck did you get that from? It is, you ready for this one? Here's your phrase. It's called something greater. We're going to get into this phrase. I think, honestly, to me, this is a really, really fun phrase about, we're going to, so you're going to be comparing, you ready for this, Solomon's life to the Messiah's and how the Messiah is greater than Solomon. Jesus even uses these words, how he says he is greater than Solomon in reference in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to get to that a little bit as time unfolds, but this is the phrase I want you to have the understanding. Now, here's where we're at, okay? So we're transitioning again. It's almost, it kind of feels a little bit like, uh, you know, the end of the Pentateuch, where here you have Moses, he's looking into the promised land. He doesn't get to go, but when you jump into the book of jo Joshua for the historical books, now it's like this major leadership transition and Joshua enters the picture. That's what you're going to start having. Now, from the second Samuel 7, Davidic covenant, and it's going to transfer over into Solomon. Now, let's talk about the title, okay? Originally, it was just called Kings, okay? Now, I will tell you this. If you want to back up before even that, you know, they actually, the Vulgate actually even combined first and second Samuel and uh, first and second Kings. And, and, um, in fact, they would have called this the third and fourth book at times. So it depends on which original version you're looking at, but just know first and second Samuel and first and second Kings. At one point, people would have historically looked to bring this group together. So first, can you imagine first Kings, second Kings, third Kings, fourth Kings? So a couple other things. The time frame is that they would say it was written between 561 and 538 BC. Okay. What are the sources for First Kings, like where would we be getting these, uh, this contact? You know, like when you think about the, the, the gospel of Matthew, you're going to have witnesses, Matthew, and in, in the perspective, Luke, he's going to give this, where are we getting this for the first book? Well, you're going to have the book of the Acts of Solomon. You're going to get the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. In fact, let's just go to one, Kevin, can we? Can we go to 14, 19, First Kings 14, 19, just to kind of give you a, an understanding, where are these sources coming from? Again, just painting a picture of First King. You know, look about it here. It says, as for the rest of the events of Jeroboam's reign, how he waged war and how he reigned, note that they are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. Okay, now if you go to verse 29, Kevin, you'll also see it's in the chronicles of, you can guess, yes, the historical record of Judah's kings. So here you have these extra sources that are being provided for. And then you also have references in Isaiah. You have references in Jeremiah that all of them feed into first kings. This would have been the source mentality. But here's what I like about what John MacArthur writes. Really, the author is, 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 is um, it's a single inspired author living in Babylon during the exile using pre, I always get this word funny, E-X-I-L-I-C, exilic. 
So here you have a guy in Babylon, right? And he's talking about all that they've learned on why they're here. Okay, that's kind of the backdrop of where we're at. Now, on a bigger picture, 1 Kings 1 through 11, okay, is really going to be about Solomon's reign. Okay, so as we're jumping in from David to Solomon, the first 11 chapters are all about Solomon taking over. And you ready for this? The United Kingdom. Okay, not the UK, not in London, not in England. Israel and Judah, they're, they're together. But now when you get into 1 Kings 12, you're going to begin to see the division between these two nations, Solomon's death, and then you're going to see division in the northern and southern kingdoms. And then when you get into 2 Kings, then you're going to start getting into the history of Judah from the time of Hezekiah to the captivity. Okay, so I'm just, again, uh, there's so many moving parts about, okay, David is now transferring over ownership into Solomon, first 11 chapters. Then you're going to get into divisions, northern and southern kingdoms. Israel, when you think of Israel, you think Judah, but in this context, they're separate. Israel and Judah are separate. And then you're going to get into the history of Judah from Hezekiah to captivity. Okay, so far, hopefully that, that makes sense. I know I'm flooding you with this. Imagine doing this in a seminary class and you have to do this for a semester and they just like we're, we're combining all of that into like 20 minutes right now so that's what you're doing it's called a fire hose drink from the fire hose hopefully you get wet a little bit okay a couple things about the author and i really like this what macarthur says it's not only a, an accurate historical account but it's an interpretation of history okay and here, here's what he means by that is he wanted to communicate the lessons of what Israel's history was to the exiles. Does that make sense? He's looking at it from the lens like, guys, this is what we, we should be learning from. And here's the big picture. The Lord's judgment has come. What can we learn from this? The Lord obviously required obedience by the kings to the Mosaic law. But the problem was if the kingdom wanted to be receive a blessing, they needed to be obedient. But the problem was what you're going to see in first king is that they are disobedient, which led them to exile. You're going to see a progression of a whole lot of kings and not a whole lot of them are obedient. And that's what we're going to see. And ultimately, it's going to land them into exile. And it's almost going to feel like they're in Egypt again. Started there and then they went there. Just kind of get this understanding. Okay, now, now think about this. All of the kings of Israel and the majority kings of Judah, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. I think we heard that a few times back in Judges. <laughs> Just a little bit. So here's what happened then. Because of that, Kevin, the prophets, okay, which at that time we would also call them the judges, the prophets then were sent, okay, to confront the monarchs, the kingdom, right, the king people, the kings, right, to address the sin and to get them to return back to him. But they rejected him, which is why they ended up in exile. So just keep going back into this pattern. And so geographically, what you're going to see in the book of Kings is and, and, and I say this because of the kingdoms that are divided. It's going to be all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Okay, this is the mentality of where we're at now. Okay, I'm almost done here with this backdrop, but I think this is really key because what you're going to see in First Kings, Second Kings, is that you're going to see a pattern. You're going to see a king being introduced. You're going to see a pattern as he's introduced, and then guess what happens? Then you'll see another one come into play. All right, I'm not going to write these down because I think there's a whole lot here. But number one, what you'll see every time a king is introduced. Name in relation to the predecessor. Like, okay, what does that look like? Then number two, the date of accession, okay, in relationship to the year of the contemporary ruler in the other kingdom, okay? So it's a comparison to northern and southern. You always hear his age 
in the coming of the throne. You're going to hear the rule, the length of the rule of his, of his reign, and then his place of the reign. Okay, this is pretty common. And strangely enough, you all, I don't know why strangely, but you'll always hear in the Judah side his mother's name. Okay, and at the same time, at the very end of introducing him, you're going to hear about the, what we would consider the spiritual appraisal of his reign. So like the spiritual appraisal of the reign, usually it was going to be, you're going to hear the line, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's, that's what we're talking about. But interesting, at the end of the introduction, like at the end of his reign, then you're going to see a pattern as well. You're going to see the citation of the sources. Like, where did we get this from, right? Like the chronicles of the history of the kings, whatever the context is. You're, going to, you're always going to see historical notes. You're going to see the notice of the death, the notice of the burial. And at times you'll see the notice of the successor. And then sometimes you'll see an added postscript. But this is always, it's, it's the pattern. Intro and then the conclusion. Here's the king, here's their rule, here's their reign. It's like a grade. It's like we always, we kind of grade people's prayers sometimes. They do that in the book of Kings. Okay, so this is the context of what you see here. So I just want you to be like, have I, have I read this before? Yes, just a different guy's name, but everything else is going to be the same. Like that's the mentality. And honestly, if you know that this pattern is going to happen, you don't have to quit. You can keep reading through it. When you go through the book of the, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, when you do these daily readings, sometimes you just check out, do you not? Because you're like, I've already been reading this. It's designed for you to see this is a pattern. And so here's why. Because there's a couple theological themes, okay? A couple theological themes. And I want to write these down because I think, I think these are really interesting. One is, okay, the Lord, the Lord judged Israel and Judah because of your thoughts, disobedience. It's kind of the obvious, right? They got judged because of disobedience to his law. Okay? This is what you're going to see over and over and over again. Okay? Same time, you're going to see a theme, and I really like this one, okay? In First Kings is that the word of the true prophets... We'll get to that. And you're going to even see that in 1 Kings 1 with Nathan the prophet. You're going to see him deliver a word and then it begins to come to fruition. The word of true prophets will come to pass. Judgment comes, word of the prophets come in, and then the next thing you know, uh, one of the other themes, and this is really key. Do you remember, I was going to point to our old painting here. Tom, I'm going to move here for you a second. You guys remember this one here? What was the phrase in 2 Samuel? Eternal throne. Eternal throne. The Lord, this is the theme, the Lord remembered, this is really important to tie in 2 Samuel, his promise to who? David. So even despite all of the judgment, even all the prophetic words, God still honors the 2 Samuel 7 Davidic covenant. He's going to carry this literally, it's kind of like, let me, I want to just draw something here, like, that's evil, 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 right? Despite all of the evilness, right? Here's what's kind of cool is that David's line still overcomes and penetrates all of that because something greater is coming. And I think that's the point of what we're going to begin to see in First, uh, first Kings chapter 1. All right, so in the first four verses of First Kings, here's, here's where we're going to go. There's 53 verses, so we might not get to everything, but... It says, now King David was old and getting on in his years. And we know that in 2 Samuel, 
uh, 5'4". It said he was 30 years old and then he reigned for 40. So hence, he was probably near 70 years old when he died. And he was getting on in years. Wasn't Pastor Gordy talking about? Yeah, he had to like go down and like change his driver's license. Yeah, so King David was changing his driver's license at this point, right? And although covered him with bedclothes, I don't think Gordy was saying he's that old, okay? So although they covered him with bedclothes, he could not get warm. Now watch in verse 2, here's what it says. It says, So his servant said to him, Let us search for a young virgin for my lord the king. She is to attend the king and be his caregiver. She's to lie by your side so that my lord the king will get warm. This just sounds... That's an interesting way to, to treat a human being. Now, I will tell you this. According to second century physician Galen, look at me, sounding so doctorish right now, and Josephus, right? Like, there was actually a medical procedure that if you put a human being next to a person that dealt with this symptoms, it works. In verse 3, though, here's what happens. They searched for a beautiful young girl throughout the territory of Israel. They found Abishag. Abishag? Abishag. What do you guys think? Abishag. No, just kidding. Abishag. Oh, that's even worse. Abishag. And here's the crazy thing. I'm already going to tell you, Abishag comes into the picture later. It's going to get interesting. They found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The girl was of unsurpassed beauty, and she became the king's caregiver. Now, before you read the next verse, if you're a guy, like, you're going to think, this can't be good. An old man, he's cold, she's warm, she's beautiful. But praise the Lord, it says she served him. But, Kevin, if you go back to verse 4, hello. But he was not intimate with her. So no relations, no sexual relations. She did her nursing job and stuck to it. For some reason, I kind of think, well, that's a shock. (laughs) Because David's been known for his patterns of not doing those things. So right now, um, this is the case. Interesting enough, in verse 5, though, enter in the traitors. Enter in the troublemakers, okay? This is the setup. Adonijah, son of Haggith, kept exalting him, saying, I will be king. This is like Ziba, isn't it, right? You know, here's the deal. David's fourth son, it means the Lord is my Lord. Amnon and Absalom, dead. Violent deaths, not good. Either big hair or people that rape, you're in trouble. I mean, that's the case with David's. It's the big hair thing, man. Every time he gets stuck in an oak tree. And so now, and Chiliab, the second son, somehow, somewhere he died younger. We don't really fully know that. But here you have Adonijah walking around. He's exalting himself. Okay, can you go to Luke 14, verse 11? We'll come back to this here in a second. Luke 14, verse 11. This is a problem when you begin to exalt yourself. In Luke 14, 11, it says this, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Praise the Lord. This should be like the theme verse for the American church. Now, Adonijah, okay, over here, this is the guy. He's like, oh, I'm it. I am the guy. Now, notice here you have Solomon, and what you have here is the rival of Solomon, to succeed David, absolutely. So, but his father in verse six said had, had never once reprimanded him. So David, remember how David is a passive father at times because of his sin since Bathsheba. It's kind of like, ah, mm-hmm. I know my sin has caused major issues. So he just takes this passive father, uh, fathering mentality. He never once said, why do you act like this? Like, don't be an idiot. Quit telling everybody you're the king. He doesn't say anything. In addition, uh, Abinadi, he was quite handsome and he was born after Absalom. And he conspired with Joab, 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 and with Abiathar, the priest. So they decided to to create their own little team. And they supported Joab and Abiathar. They supported Adonijah in verse 8. But Zadok, the priest, Benaniah, son of Joida, Nathan, the prophet, Shimei, 
Not the same guy that's throwing rocks and stones and the cursing guy. Not that guy. The other one. Ray and David's warriors, that the ones that Gordy talked about, David's warriors, none of them sided with Adonijah. So literally, here you have a full-on, like, game on. This is great. Like, you have guys that don't like each other, guys that are on this side. No, I like Joab. Joab's a, a real dude. But then you have Nathan, David's warriors, and then you can begin to play which guy is which side. So let's go to the chart here. I know we love this chess piece if we can here. And so here you have, it's a little bit pixelated, sorry, but who's going to sit on David's throne, okay? So you have Solomon, who is supposed to, Adonijah, hey, I'm the king, and then Joab and Abiathar, these are the purple guys over here, and then you have Benaniah, Zadok, Nathan, and Bathsheba, this side. Like, the question is, in 1 Kings, who's going to take ownership? Who's going to take over? And all I have to tell you is Jesus talks about there's something greater, and he says, it's me, but his reference and his comparison, it's not to Adonijah, his comparison is to Solomon. And so in verse 9, Adonijah, he sacrificed sheep, oxen, fat, and cattle near the stone of Zohelith, which means serpent, okay? So just even the fact that he does that next to a place called the serpent, you're just kind of like, this guy doesn't feel right, which is ultimately next to Enrogel. He invited all of his royal brothers, all the men of Judah, the servants of the king. Adonijah is doing it right, but, okay, in verse 10, if you'll go, uh, he says he didn't invite Nathan the prophet, Benaniah, the warriors, or his brother Solomon. Well, Kevin, let's state the obvious. Why is he not inviting his brother Solomon? He knows who's supposed to be king. And so enter in, okay, our good friend Nathan the prophet. Nathan, okay, he's the guy, man. He's, he's so a real deal. He poured into David's life. And then here's the fun part. Nathan actually told Bathsheba and David <laughs> what Solomon's name was going to mean. Like Nathan is intimately caring for Solomon. And so here you have, he comes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mom. He's like, hey, have you heard about Adonijah? Hey, the guy is walking around saying, I'm going to be king. <laughs> In verse 12, he says, come on, let's, let, let me advise you. Save your life and the life of your son Solomon. Go approach King David. I mean, this feels almost like an Esther story. We haven't even talked about Esther. I need you to approach King David and say, my Lord, the king, don't swear to you. Did you not swear to your servant? Your son Solomon is, is to become king after me. And he is the one who is to sit on my throne. So why has Adonijah become king? So, look, not trying to be funny. David is just trying to stay warm. Like, he's just trying to live right now. Like, that's his thought process. This is what he's probably thinking. And so then it continues on in verse 14. Uh, at that moment, while you're still speaking there, Nathan says, I'll come in. We'll time it perfectly. I'll come in and I'll just confirm everything that you just said. And then Bathsheba, guess what? She does. She then actually goes back to David after hearing Nathan's words. Why? Because Adonijah thinks he's king. And so Bathsheba comes into the bedroom. I think this is the awkward moment. The king was very old and there's Abishag. Like, who are you? But then again, remember, at that point, she was the eighth wife, probably, plus ten concubines. Eh, what's another lady? So since the king was very old, Abishag, the Shunammite, was serving him. Okay? Continues on, and Bathsheba bowed down and paid homage to the king. And, she, and the king just said, what, what do you want? Verse 17, she said, my lord, here's what I want. Your son Solomon is to become king after me, and he is the one who is to sit on my throne. Scripture continues on. Now look, Adonijah has become king, and my lord, the king, you didn't, you didn't know it. And in verse 19, he, he had lavishly sacrificed, and then he begins to talk about the sacrifices. And then she says, here's what I need you to do in verse 20. The eyes of all of Israel, David, they're watching. 
You tell them who's going to sit on the throne of my Lord. You walk into, if I can just put in into words right now, you, you walk into the anointing because it's supposed to go to Solomon and you know this. Otherwise, if you don't, Bathsheba says, I and Solomon will be considered criminals. And I love Nathan. Remember, Nathan was going to come on in at the time. They, they just timed it perfectly. And while she was still speaking, Nathan's like, oh, hey, surprise, you guys are here. <laughs> and the prophet arrives and he says, uh, and it was announced, Nathan the prophet is here. It kind of just makes me wonder a little bit about David's hearing and sight. I'm, I'm serious. Just like, uh, what kind of, how was he really feeling? And so he came into the king's presence. He bowed down to him with his face to the ground. And again, he begins to reiterate the same thing. Adonijah is not supposed to be king. And so he continues on. But by the way, I just want to make sure you understand. In verse 26, he didn't invite me. You need to know this. He's hiding things from us. He didn't invite, he didn't invite us, Zadok the priest or Benaniah or your servant Solomon when he starts saying, long live King Adonai. He's not inviting us to involve us because he's secretly going around us. And so then in David, in verse 28, David calls for Bathsheba. He calls her back in. and, And then he just says, as the Lord lives in verse 29, who has redeemed my life from every difficulty? Just, and here's the key, you guys, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, your son Solomon is to become king after me. And he's the one who's to sit on my throne in my place. That is exactly what I will do this very day. And then Bathsheba bows with her face to the ground, paying homage to the king. And she says, my, may my Lord, King David, live forever. And King David, then he calls into the players. He calls in Zadok, the scripture says. It says he calls in Benaniah, the general, right? And it says, and he calls in all of these people and, he, and the king, and they came into the presence. And in verse 33, the king says, take my servants with you. And here it is. Wow. Have my son Solomon ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. You know, uh, uh, a lot of us might just in passing, be like, hey, what's, what's the big deal about the mule? Do you, do you remember... Do you remember when Absalom was on the donkey? He was on the mule, sorry. He was on the mule. And remember his head gets stuck, but the mule kept going. And we talked about what a prophetic picture of the kingdom literally just went right out under his feet. And remember when Saul and, and they tore off the, the piece of the robe and, and Samuel uh, of Samuel's and Samuel just said, the kingdom has been torn from you. Like, I feel like this is the image. He's now saying, I am now giving the kingdom that is with me. I'm now giving it to my son. 2 Samuel 13, 29, if you'll go there, Kevin. 2 Samuel 13, 29. It's an incredible picture. 2 Samuel 13, 29. So Absalom's young men did to Ammon, just as Absalom had commanded, and all the rest of the king's sons got up and each fled on his mule. So you're going to see this imagery of this mule talking about the rulership. And it's going to keep doing this, Kevin, over and over. It's going to go to 2 Samuel 18. And then I really want you to go to Zechariah 9, 9, okay? This mentality of this mule is serving as a symbol of the king, of those who are in charge. And this is the prophetic. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shoot and triumph. Shout and triumph. Don't shoot and triumph. Shout and triumph, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this is picture that what David did, what Solomon is going to do, so is the Messiah. So is the Messiah in Matthew 21, verse 5. And so I'm going to give the mule is literally a symbol of saying the king is now being passed on to this man. And so in Matthew 21, 5, the same thing happens. See, your, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the full of a beast of a burden. It is this same picture that now Solomon is truly taking over. 
here's what happens, Kevin, if we'll go back. And so then Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, you're going to anoint him. I think this is interesting, okay? If there was a break in the kingdom line, so like let's just say like it went from King David to like somebody not even in the family. At that point then, a prophet would then have to come in, okay, and anoint. But because of this, uh, Zadok the priest is going to actually fulfill this prophet and f- fulfill this role. Does that make sense? And so like, l- let me go through you, Kevin, if you would. They blew the ram's horn and all the people explained, long live King Solomon. So Zadok is the one who's going to perform this anointing. And obviously Nathan is there as well. But if it wasn't the interu- if there was an interruption, it would only have been a prophet. Okay, that's kind of the process that you'd see. And so long live King Solomon. And in John 12, verse 13, you guys, again, this is the same picture. What's going to start taking place as they begin to announce and people begin to recognize who he is, it's the same picture that's going to come. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. What, what happened with David is now happening with Solomon. But ultimately, it's going to happen to the coming Messiah and his, his, name, is, his name is Christ. And look in verse 40, all the peoples, okay? All the peoples followed him, playing flutes, and back in second, uh, First Kings, playing flutes and rejoicing with such a great joy that the earth split open from the sound. There is so much here, you guys, that points to the Messiah. Here you have Solomon coming in, and as people are rejoicing about the new king, look what happens. The earth even split. Now, if you're Adonijah, you probably should be getting nervous. Because they begin to hear the news. The town begins to hear they're in uproar. And so Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, comes to him and says, Hey, not good news. Solomon has taken his seat on the royal throne in verse 46. (laughs) And so it says in verse 50, I'm just going to jump there because of time. It says, Adonijah was afraid of, of Solomon. In fact, in verse 49, it says, Adonijah's guests were trembling. Like Adonijah and his folks... This whole crew right here, for this moment right now, just for the second, they're super nervous. They're super afraid. And because of that, in verse 50, it says, Adonijah went to take a hold of the horns of the altar. He's asking for mercy at the bloodstained altar. He's saying, I can't do this. I need your help. It's a refuge for those who would have committed um, what we would consider unintentional crimes. So in Leviticus 4 and Exodus 21, these are symbols of saying, "I, I need help. And so it was reported to Solomon, look, Adonijah fears you. He fears King Solomon. And he's taken a hold of the horns of the altar. And he's saying, let King Solomon first swear to me that he will not kill his servant with the sword. I need mercy. It's not really what you would think of, of, a, of, a, of, a, king who want, of a guy who wants to be king, is it? Like, just like that, Adonijah, I'm just going to tell you in this chapter, <laughs> another chapter, another story. But for right now, he sees call, King Solomon And he says, I I can't do this. And so Solomon, he says, if he's a man of character, not a single hair of his will fall to the ground. So in other words, if he walks out in good character, I'll honor that. But if evil is found in him, he's dead. So he kind of makes this crazy disclaimer. And then he says in verse 53, so King Solomon sent for Adonijah, who wanted to take the kingship. And they took him down from the altar. They they took him from the uh, the horned altar. And he came and he paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said, go to your Home. In other words, Solomon, at this point right now, in political terms, gave a pardon to Adonijah. I know you were wrong. I understand what you did. But I just want to tell you, like, right now, you're forgiven. I just want to, I want to paint this picture of Solomon. Because 
if I'm Solomon, I maybe would want to crush this dude. Like, he kind of went ahead. He took what wasn't his. And yet, it's an incredible picture about the anointed king. And can I just tell you what we're going to see all throughout the book of 1 Kings is that even though Solomon, for the first 11 chapters, is an amazing man of God, Scripture says in Matthew 12, verse 42, if you'll go there, Kevin. Matthew 12, 42. Jesus, in, in referencing uh, Solomon, he says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth, look at this, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Everybody knew that Solomon was a wise man, the wisest of all, and how he handled every situation. But Jesus says, look, something greater than Solomon is here. So every time we see an act of Solomon saying, I'm going to give mercy, I'm going to pardon this, Jesus says, I'm greater than anything Solomon has done. And that's what we want to see unpack and unfold in the book of 1 Kings. All right, we look forward to this, guys, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks.